Hallelujah. Father, we thank You. We have so much to rejoice in and to set our mind upon, to behold in Your Holy Word, to remember the Word proclaimed unto us that was mixed with the faith, the grace, the gift, the Holy Spirit supplied that awakened to our understanding, even at the first time of our comprehension of the Gospel, the saving work of Jesus Christ, His blood shed for our sins. Father, as we think of these things today, the fact that You hold our soul in the palm of Your safekeeping hands, palms that were bruised, palms that were pierced, and wounded for our transgressions, we magnify You, Lord, for this. We also, as we consider the plan of redemption, which from eternity past was by your sovereign design, executed in time perfectly according to your plan, every detail lining up according to the prophecies and the decree that you had ordained. We thank you, God, that we serve the genius of one who holds this world in his hands, who has purchased our salvation and has planned to glorify himself through these means. We thank you today that you have granted unto us This book of your great self-disclosure. This book which reveals to our hearts and to our minds and to our eyes as the Spirit is pleased to open them the great beauty of your redemptive work and your great character and attributes that spill across the pages with so many glorious colors, Lord, that we cannot comprehend them unless you open our hearts to appreciate, our eyes to see, and our mind to comprehend. So we pray that you would do this today. As we open your scriptures, we also pray that you would seal upon our hearts the finished work of Calvary as we partake at your table later in this service. We pray that you would answer these prayers all to the praise of your great name, that the name of Jesus Christ our Lord might be championed through us his people, that you might equip us to do exactly this through the proclamation of your word this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What a great gift we have in the Holy Scriptures. What a glorious unfolding, the truth of God's Word, as we seek to make our way through the book of Galatians, for instance, this morning. I trust that you will appreciate, as we do so, the contours of the Gospel as they unfold in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Turn with me to Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29, if you would, this morning. Let's continue our series in the second half of the third chapter. Today's message is entitled, According to Promise. We are told in Galatians by the Apostle in verse 42 that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul is very emphatic to distinguish the ground of our association within his great work of redemption, our family bond, that is to say, to the lineage of Abraham and indeed all who are called out of this world into His marvelous light, what makes the difference is nothing to do with ourselves and everything to do with the sovereign grace of a holy God. Thus, we are heirs, we are children of Abraham, not according to our works, not according to our abilities, not according to anything that is a measure within ourselves, but indeed according to the promise of God and His promise alone. The aim of this morning's message as we behold these truths and this great work of Paul's instruction to this church, is that we might behold the power of God, considering His promise, His promises, and their fulfillment. Let us behold the power of God as we consider His promises and their fulfillment before us in the book of Galatians today. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's Word today? 
as the word of the Lord is proclaimed in your hearing from Galatians 3, again, verses 15 through 29. Here we have the holy word of God. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. But if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? Verse 19. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Returning to Galatians reminds us that Paul has a central purpose in his letter. And this central purpose resurfaces with each argument he deploys, and he grants, gives us several today in our text. The church, as you recall, in Galatia had begun to entertain the idea that salvation... Freedom from the bondage, the judgment due our sin. Salvation was not exclusively secured by grace through faith in Christ alone. The church had begun to believe that the exclusive power of salvation was not by grace through faith in Christ alone. And this was a huge problem. One that motivated Paul to write post-haste. One that motivated to write him to write emphatically persuasively and authoritatively to dispel this notion. The apostle, after all, was well aware that if such an idea, the fact that salvation was by grace plus anything, if that idea was tolerated to any degree within the confessing church, this heresy would soon spread like cancer and threaten to corrupt the greater body of Christ and indeed the whole of Christian doctrine. And he knew it would be a great temptation, let me add as well, because we are glory thieves 
in our sin. We would like to retain some credit, some glory for our salvation apart from that which is ascribed to Christ alone. If there is something in and of us that made some kind of difference in our hope for eternity, then we can pat ourselves to some degree on the back. And so Paul knew that this insidious error would be tempting indeed and destructive, in fact, and so he must stamp it out as soon as possible. This emphatic mission of Paul to set the church straight while there was still influence and opportunity to do so gives rise in God's providence to central proclamations of gospel truth throughout the book. Beautiful summaries of our hope in Christ come to the fore. Our text today is preceded by one of these, and let me remind you of it in verses 13 and 14 of Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What a glorious gospel summary. The verses which follow our text today serve to proclaim and explain, if you will, the legal documentation and its precise terms throughout Scripture which set the parameters for the gospel. In this way, Paul provides an expert witness for covenant theology. The truth of how God reveals Himself through this framework of covenant. The Bible adopts this framework through and through. Paul is extremely familiar with it, and he identifies this error by raising up the standard of correct covenant thinking and then judging the heresy uh, by, by this standard. He details the specifics of God's covenant relationship with His people through the course of redemptive history. And as Paul writes to the Galatians, he provides a detailed analysis of covenant specifics that ground the gospel from the very first sermons that were preached in Acts by apostles who preceded him. And let us note one, just to highlight the continuity of all the teaching of the New Testament, indeed all the scriptures. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. What Paul's explaining in our text today, though it might sound more detailed and technical, it nevertheless is presumed behind the words of Peter when he first began to proclaim the word of God in sermons such as these. And here, is, here he is speaking in Solomon's portico and verses... Acts 3, verses 18 and 20 give us similar themes. Note what follows in, the, uh, in the, his oratory here. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And then we continue to read in the latter portion of his sermon as he gets to his appeal. Note in verses 25 and following. Peter says, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. 
And so we see the theme in Peter's sermon is repent of your wickedness. And in that act of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit using the proclaimed truth of all of covenant history to awaken your attention to your sin and the means of grace, as this happens, show yourself to be true, legitimate heirs of Abraham, your patriarch and father in the faith. And do not be mistaken, mere blood lineage, mere ethnic connections, mere cultural affiliation is no substantial connection. That does not make you a son of Abraham. What makes you a son of Abraham? Awakening to the truth of the gospel, understanding the terms of the covenant as God has ordered them, knowing that you are a sinner who cannot in any way save yourself, knowing that even your heritage is no ultimate benefit to you if you lean on the fact that you are a Jew or something else as ground and assurance of your salvation. No, ground and assurance is only found in Christ and His work on Calvary. This is the fulfillment of the promise, the covenant made to Abraham of old, and now the dawning of this fulfillment is upon the church, and so Peter and Paul emphasize as much, even against heresy. So this morning, there's a heading that I ventured for three major points from our text, and it is this, analyzing the contractual documentation of the gospel. There's documentation along the lines of a covenant or a contract. It's a written legal framework that we find in the Scriptures, and Paul refers to this. Paul is a legal mind. He's something of a lawyer, certainly a student of the Scriptures through and through, and as he analyzes the contractual documentation of the gospel, he reinforces the truth and he combats heresy. There's three major themes that perhaps we can see in our text today that Paul emphasizes by analyzing the covenants of old, or or analyzing the greater covenant history. Number one, covenant specificity. There There are specific terms and conditions to the covenant that are highlighted as Paul gives us this history lesson. Secondly, covenant stability. There is an unchanging nature, even as God Himself is unchangeable. There is a rock-solid stability and predictability, unchanging character to the work and Word of God. And this is evidenced in, so if, if you believe in something, long story short, that presumes a change in the covenant or recast it in a different light, or it's an interpretation that does not agree with the continuity in Scripture, you know you have a problem. Covenant specificity covenant stability, and thirdly this morning, covenant covenant reality, the covenant realized. So let us look at our text today and see what we can learn from Paul, this great student of the Scripture. First of all, analyzing the contractual documents of the gospel, we find that there is a covenant specificity highlighted in Paul's words. Notice verses 15 through 18. Let's consider just verse 15 to start. Galatians 3.15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul is affirming that within the structure and framework of a covenant, once that document is sealed, once the signatures, so to speak, have been placed upon that written agreement, it is unchanging, it is certified, it is ratified, it is set in stone, it is sealed in wax, it is there to stay. This was true of covenants even outside of the, you know, that people would have been familiar with at the time, certainly in the history 
of the people of God in the tradition and laws, contractual arrangements of their day. And so Paul appeals to this example, which raises the question, if by human example you can show that there is a certain authoritative binding element to when a covenant is ratified and signed, if that is an impressive example to the people, how much more a covenant that is written and ratified by the Lord Himself? What kind of binding power, what kind of unchanging weight might that have? The rest of the Scriptures reinforce this idea. Turn with me to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, the author touches upon this question directly. And he is highlighting the significance of the covenant, the promises that God made to Abraham by saying the following, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So in the context and in the dangers that surround the church and might cause her to flounder, both authors, Paul, floundered by way of heresy, floundered by way of persecution, either way, in either context, both authors, Hebrews, Paul in Galatians, refer to the unchanging nature, the set-in-stone ratification weight of the covenants of God so that they might be encouraged and stand strong. The authors of Scripture know that we live in a world that is corrupted by winds of doctrine, changing ideas, man's fickle nature, and the temptations of philosophies and empty explanations that are so popular that can create for us just rabbit trails galore to send us down some kind of wild goose chase of doctrine and leave the bedrock of our hope in Christ. So what is the antidote to this kind of temptation? To realizing, to, it is realizing the unchanging character of the Word of God. The fact that when God issues a promise, even if the fulfillment of that promise is thousands of years in coming, it is as sure as the day He said so uh, today, even if the wait is long. Peter acknowledges that there are scoffers who, come in the, who will come in later days and say, where is the promise of His coming? Things are continuing as they were. I see no evidence on the horizon that Jesus will come again, or no evidence on the horizon that God's promises will be fulfilled. Now, how do we uh, combat that kind of skepticism, that kind of cynicism? We return to the Word of God. We see that God fulfills His promises and not one is ever forgotten. We remark how through the course of history, He has given us milestone after milestone where His promises of deliverance were fulfilled in His perfect time. We may not be the generation to see it, but a generation absolutely will. God swore by Himself because He had nothing higher to swear to that His promises 
will come to pass. By an oath and by a promise, these two unchangeable witnesses, as it were, to His covenant that He makes for His glory with His people, this is the ratification weight that we see in Scripture referenced by Paul in Galatians and by the author of Hebrews. This is important for us, saints. The specific nature and the reliability of the covenant promises of God, this is important for us because we live in a society that takes so lightly promises and contracts and agreements. Uh, Think of the marriage contract, the marriage covenant, and how lightly that is taken in our day and age. At what, at just a little change in someone's heart, attitude, life circumstances, they're willing to abandon that solemn oath they took before God and witnesses of death do us part, I am committed to this relationship and there will, and I will uh, reject anything that would come to break my commitment. The scriptures tell us, don't take hasty oaths, don't rush to make vows. Don't make empty promises. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's whole categories indeed in the Sermon of the Mount of lawful oaths and vows. Why? Because the Bible takes seriously promises. Our culture may not take them seriously. We may not take them seriously. But it is utter blasphemy to apply, to imply that God does not take His promises seriously. The most powerful uh, the most powerful uh, work in all of Scripture, the, uh, the uh, absolute message of truth that you can take to the bank is the Scriptures themselves. Whether they are prophesying of something to come or they're a record of something that has happened, they are more substantial by eternal degrees than anything that man uh, seeks to base their authority, their authority on. And so, as we analyze this, Uh, Paul wants us to know that uh, the ratification of the covenants that God makes is a a significant thing indeed. It carries great weight. Secondly, he points to this singular seed, if you will, verse 16, Galatians 3. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. First thing Paul wants the church in Galatia to know is God's Word doesn't change. Secondly, he wants them to know is that there is a singular concept or there is a singular subject of the uh, covenant that has its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Christ. And this is surprising at first glance. You might ask yourself, well, when the seed of Abraham is referred to in Scripture, isn't that with reference to a large number of people? Here Paul seems to be saying that with offspring in the singular uh, refers in fact to one. Here I think is the answer. Paul's commentary points to the utilization of the singular noun seed as an illustration that the promise comes by way of one individual, Jesus Christ. In other words, think of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Is that everybody or is that us conquering through and in one person, Jesus Christ? In fact, the seed promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that we've remarked so often in our Genesis study upon, that seed is Jesus Christ. Or we ask ourselves the concept of the appointed son. 
Eve says, I have gotten to me, or the Lord has appointed unto me a son, Seth. And yes, there is an, there's appointed sons who typologically uh, point forward to another, but the ultimate appointed one is Jesus Christ. And this is the idea that Paul is reinforcing. So seed is an illustration in the singular of the promise that comes by way of one individual, Jesus Christ. And by virtue of union with Him, all, uh, all true heirs of Abraham then receive their promises. That is to say, the promise of God does not come by virtue of law-keeping of many sons of Abraham. So hope for the promises uh, of God's covenant with man come through one person, Jesus Christ. And by virtue of union with Jesus Christ, which we'll comment on more later, now those promises are available to everyone. This is distinct from the notion that the sons of Abraham are set apart by their individual righteousness. It's not that the promises would be realized through a lot of people acting righteously, following the law, and now the seed of Abraham realizes its promises by all these different people um, working, uh, or working for their salvation. No, indeed, there is a singular seed to come, Jesus Christ alone, and by virtue of union with Him, all the greater seed, plural, of Abraham receive the promises. So I think this is the emphasis here that Paul is seeking to draw out as he continues to comment on covenant specificity. The covenant promises come specifically or come to us specifically through one in the promised lineage of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we see uh, a contrast between promise and law under covenant specificity. Notice in verses 17 and 18. This is what I mean, Paul writes. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Here's Paul's point. If the giving of the law suddenly changed the terms of the covenant, it would render the promises to Abraham null and void. But remember, when God ratifies a covenant, it stands in perpetuity. So when the law came, it didn't all of a sudden change the terms of covenant, now you work for your salvation. No, this law served a different purpose indeed. That is to say, in the time of Moses, this was not a, quote, republication of the covenant of works, as some have claimed. That now there is a republication or restatement of the covenant of works. Do these works, and, that, and thereby you will earn your salvation. No, this is wrong according to Paul. And, 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 and his main point is this, that if God made a promise to Abraham and said, by virtue of this promise, you have certainty of hope and salvation in your future, and then 430 years later, he changed that covenant, then God could break his word. That indeed did not happen. The covenant that was given to Abraham was on the basis and the power of God's promises. And the law, which came 430 years later, served in a provisional sense. It was in service to that uh, greater covenant. It did not supplant it. It did not change it. This was important because 
people were misinterpreting the great, the big picture of Scripture and assuming that there were certain laws that would allow for them a path of salvation combined with the grace of God, and therefore they were perverting the specificity of the covenant. So that's the first major point this morning in Paul's instructions to the Galatian church. There is a specific nature to this covenant, and you must understand it. And note in light of this standard of God's work through history that you are in danger of falling short. Let's note the promise to which Paul refers, and I think perhaps the best example is in Genesis 22, 15 through 18. You might ask yourself, what promise, what is this covenant language that Paul refers to with respect to the, uh, the assurances that God granted unto Abraham? And here's a summary of them that's restated in several places as God revealed to Abraham over the course of his life the knowledge of his will and salvation. But in Genesis 22, 15 through 18, we have a particular salient moment of covenant revelation. And this is right after Abraham has hauled his son up Mount Moriah, as I recall, the wood of the sacrifice on his back following obediently the instructions of the Lord to sacrifice his son. And as you know the story, Isaac is tied up on the altar, the knife is lifted, and then there is a voice from heaven telling Abraham to stop, do not kill your son. And in God's providence, a ram is provided in the bush, the ram is sacrificed in the place of Isaac. After this takes place, we read the following, Genesis twenty-two fifteen. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. Do you recognize that language? First of all, the angel of the Lord, this is God himself. The angel of the Lord, uh, this is a theophany, if you will. It's a, a revelation of the Lord, an angelic form in some sense. Yet we know it is of God, it, we know it is God himself because the angel says, By myself I have sworn. This is language of Hebrews 6. This is language that Paul refers to. This is the certainty of covenant ratification as God speaks from His own mouth what He will accomplish in His perfect time. It says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven And as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates, gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. There would come a substitute sacrifice that was prefigured in this event right here, a Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who himself was the singular seed of Abraham. And at that moment, on that hill of sacrifice, when the knife of God's justice is lifted, so to speak, his hand was not stayed, but plunged indeed into the side of his only son, piercing in in addition his hands and feet. Crushing blows of tools of torture tore his back open, and rebellious hands, mocking all the while, crushed thorns into his skull. And in this event, this singular seed of Abraham held out hope for salvation, the fulfillment of this promise 
thousands, which preceded the crucifixion of Jesus Christ by thousands of years. I have sworn, I have declared that I will do this. The Lord spoke to Abraham, and so he did. If you trust and believe Jesus Christ is your sole means of salvation, and if you partake at the Lord's table, realizing the significance of His broken body and shed blood, you can count yourself among those prophesied by God Himself to Abraham, your and my forefather, all the way back in Genesis 22. This is by promise. This is by promise. God has done this. It is not through our law-keeping, it is through Christ. It is not by our sacrifice, it is through His offering of His holy, of Himself without spot or blemish as the Passover lamb whereby we are saved. This is the specificity of the covenant, promised and fulfilled, and now reiterated to a church that is in danger of losing its significance. Second major point this morning, covenant stability. Verses 19 through 24 of Galatians 4. So this, Paul anticipates a question. He has just said that this law that came forward in 30 years later does not change the fact that salvation is based on God's promises one bit. So why then, uh, why then do we have the law? That's the question that arises, verse 19. Why then the law? Paul says, it was added because of transgressions until the, uh, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. There is a stability that God has established to attend His covenant. Note how many times through the history of God's people might the seed of the woman have been totally and utterly destroyed. The young people have been studying the significance of the Bible, evidences that it is truly the Word of God. Do you guys remember last week, was it, that you uh, studied, or maybe the week before, the indestructibility of the Word of God? What does indestructibility mean, young people? That's right, it cannot be destroyed. There were times in history where it would seem that God's Word was all but lost, and a scroll is found in the ruins, and the people return in repentance and faith to the promises that are contained in that scroll. There are times in the history and lineage of David where it would seem that the enemies of God's people would overrun the borders and snuff out God's plan for salvation by utterly destroying the population of that tiny, relatively by man's standards, insignificant corner of the Middle East known as Canaan, Palestine, Israel, and so forth. Yet God provided stability for His covenant. Paul says that one of the stabilizing forces for the covenant itself was the law. There are three uses in theology that we recognize for the law. Their technical terms are civic, pedagogical, and didactic. Civic is the use of the law in government. The law is a stabilizing force in society so that a nation is not utterly overrun by depravity. The civic use of the law is the knowledge that if you go out and go on a joyride with a stolen car, you will likely hear sirens and see lights in your rearview mirror before too long. It's a civic use of the law. Pedagogical, that's the teaching use of the law. It's instruction. Paul says in Romans 7, 7 and thereabouts that the law taught him that he was a sinner. 
The law held out the holy standard of God's righteousness, and when this impossible standard for us to reach is evident in our consciousness, we find ourselves falling short. Indeed, Paul says in, another go- or in his gospel in Romans that all fall short of the glory of God, and so in this way, the law shows us our sin. There's also a didactic use, which is teaching, and the law teaches us what God loves and appreciates. So after the Holy Spirit indwells us, the law gives us, aspects of the law give us a framework for how to live in light of Him. It's a program, it's a structure, if you will, for worship. These are three uses of the law. But this, uh, in, this then, a delivery of the law, this, uh, this glorious presentation of God's righteousness and His requ- requirements serves as a stability for society, for the covenant, uh, for the people of God, for covenant history, and it does so through these different means. We also recognize divisions in the law. There is laws that govern uh, government and Israel, national Israel at the time. There are laws that govern the sacrificial system. And then there's the moral law. Some of these distinctions are recognized in systematic theology. The moral law is the righteousness that is continuous across time that is revealed in God's holy word. All of these aspects of God's law were provisional. They were God's providence, God's supplying, stabilizing forces for the people of God so that His covenant plans would continue through history. The law was added because of transgressions. If there was no legal framework to deal justly when the land was guilty of blood guilt, for instance, when the land was polluted by blood guilt, as we talked about last week, then the place would be overrun by absolute horror. But when there was tribunals and there was judges and courts in place to try by testimony of two or three witnesses to see if one was guilty for the blood of the innocents, then that law served as a stabilizing force. God added uh, to the experience of man this great counterbalanced so that the storms of history and our own depravity would not capsize the ship of His intentions through the course of history. And this was the case until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law, think of this analogy. You have a ship and you have a hull that's shaped like so, and deep within the hull are ballast stones. There's a weight down there, and and, and this helps the ship to stay stable. The ship representing the purposes of God. These ballast stones representing His law. The waves and so forth representing the chaotic effects of this fallen world. God supplies sufficient ballast stones in the ship of His will and intentions so that nothing of this fallen world and evil can ultimately upset His decree, His will, and His intentions. And so the law was given to do this kind of thing as a great stabilizing force. It was, that is to say, the law, the Mosaic era. It was an administration serving the covenant of grace, coming alongside as its servant, not supplanting it, not changing it, not contradicting it, not introducing new terms by which man can be saved. No, it was an interim covenant, if you will, to allow God's plans to continue forward in history, restraining the course of evil that might otherwise upset them. It was preserving the seed of the woman. It was preserving the Davidic line 
It was providing a measure of stability in the experience of mankind in order that history would progress until a son would be born of the Virgin Mary and would ascend to the hill of Calvary and fulfill the conditions so that the promise uh, to Abraham might be realized for you and me and for every true believer. There's this idea of intermediary that Paul uses again as an illustration. He says in verse 20, now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So what is this idea of intermediary? What are its implications? Simply this, an intermediary is someone that goes between. Think of a negotiator or think of arbitration. You have two people that have certain demands and desires and they cannot resolve their differences. So a mediator sits down at a table and hears out the one side and hears out the other and tries to come to terms negotiating between the two of a compromise. So an intermediary implies that this, this uh, party's demands carry some weight, perhaps not as much as the other, but some, and then this party's demands carry some weight. Intermediary uh, implies more than one active agent in a legal scenario. So negotiations, as they continue apace, they involve stipulations placed on another party constituting a conditional arrangement arrangement whereby the terms of covenant are in some way dependent on the obedience or the demands of the lesser party. Paul distinguishes the gospel from this arrangement by emphasizing that the inheritance of Abraham is guaranteed by way of promise by the word and work of God alone. When we sit down, as it were, at the table of negotiation, and there is no mediator that hears our case and says, well, on the basis of your good works to least limited degree, I think we can work something out. No. There's no intermediary because we have no standing. We are, there is no intrinsic righteousness in us. So therefore, any salvation, any hope offered for us is by virtue of God's promise alone. That is the ground and assurance of our salvation. We cannot trust our works to go before us and give us a good recommendation. There is no job interview where we submit a resume before the King of Kings and say, I think I'm qualified for a position in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. In this sense, there is no intermediary because we have no negotiating, no bargaining leverage, no position. Don't be confused with the term mediator. It's a similar term, and we do have a mediator. It's Jesus Christ. But that mediator does not take in, Jesus Christ does not take into account any righteousness on our part. What he does is he offers himself as a sacrifice and the go-between so that we can have audience, communion, fellowship, reconciliation with the Father. As we continue to see how the stabilizing forces of covenant are commented on in Paul's study of the contractual documentation of the gospel, we see this last concept of the law as a guardian. This is really something, and it speaks to some of what we've already said. 
But to put a finer point on it, note verse 22. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So that when the, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It may be helpful to understand this concept of the law as a guardian by knowing something of the culture of the day. If someone hired a guardian or commissioned someone to be a guardian, sort of like a godfather or something like that, um, for their children, they would often be a slave and they would have a lot of responsibility over their master's child. And as such, this guardian was responsible for the child's training, their protection, and they also were there to separate and to keep the child from the influence of outsiders. They were the ones who would enforce the will of the parent, if you will. And so Paul is using the law, uh, is using this analogy to help us understand the law. The law enforced the will of the parent. It kept the people of God even separate from outsiders. It kept the culture of the Hebrews in some way distinct, preserving the, the seed and preserving the word of God and the message of salvation all along. But that guardian gives way to Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came. And now we have this family relationship that is fully realized in the new, in the new covenant and upon the death of Christ and our adoption due to the same. In order, Paul says, that we might be justified by faith. So praise the Lord for His provision for covenant stability, His provisional dictation of the law to stabilize God's intentions along the way. This, uh, the implications that the, we need not seek an intermediary appealing to our own works, but instead recognizing that our hope is in God's promises alone. And finally, His law as a guardian servant to preserve His will and His people and His word up until the time of fulfillment. Finally this morning, covenant reality, covenant realized. We're analyzing the contractual documentation of the gospel as Paul unveils it for us. We come to this final point in verses 25 through 29 of our text. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Uh, young people, you want to play the stop game? Do you guys remember what this is? So when you hear the word in or into, you say stop. So I'm going to read a few verses and if you hear the word in or the word into, tell me to stop, okay? Everybody ready? But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, there we go. So Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, awesome, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So how many times did you guys hear in or into? <laughs> Give you a hint there. That's correct. Three times. Good job, by the way, on that. You guys got all three. Three times Paul references 
with prepositional language, this concept of in or into Christ. It's union with Christ language. Now, this is how Paul shifts now from covenant promised, covenant preserved, to covenant realized, covenant reality. The covenant is realized in our experience when we find ourselves in Christ. In Christ, after all, we are all sons of God. The covenant is realized for us, for as many of us who were baptized into Christ. And furthermore, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says that by virtue of our union with Christ, we are sons of God. Oh, the difference that faith makes. This gift, this sovereign gift of God that awakens in our heart a realization of the truth of the gospel and then attaches our affections and our trust to Christ alone to save us. Oh, the glory and the power of this faith, the difference that it makes. It, it, may, it renders us sons of God. Where we were once sons of the serpent, the seed of the serpent, we are now sons of God. This language is incredible. This sons of God or son of God language is used with reference to Adam. In God's creation, Adam was the son of God. He was the one especially designed and given the first covenant, the covenant of works or covenant of life as we sometimes call it. And so Adam was a significant and important figure in God's work. And more important still was another son of God, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. But in between, the sons of God was used to refer to all God's people who were gathered out of the nations who were pagan and rebellious. And they were given the word of God and covenant promises so that as they understood them and placed their faith in them, they were united with his purposes by this bond of his word, by this covenant union, so that they could rightly say, We belong to the Lord. And now, we share this title as well. If you are in Christ today, if you've repented of your sins, if you've placed faith in Jesus as your Messiah, like uh, this covenant relationship that is spoken of throughout Scripture, you now experience that as a son of the Lord God Himself. Entitling us, that is to say, this new relationship entitles us to the inheritance that comes by way or by virtue of our adopted status. It is not our own goodness. Imagine an orphanage that is filled with delinquents. These are not children whose parents have died or merely died. These are children who have killed their parents. Imagine this orphanage filled with uh, these uh, juvenile delinquents. And a set of parents comes to this orphanage And they decide that they want to adopt one of these children. And this child is not grateful. They attempt to murder their new set of parents. They spit in their face. They do all kinds of lying and conniving, uh, uh, hating their parents. Well, the mercy and grace that is extended by these parents continues through the years until one day this child is broken by love, so to speak, and their heart is changed and they repent of their wickedness, their murderous heart, their evil intentions, their lying and their theft. And they come crying to their parents and they say, thank you for adopting me. That child, as he considers his own testimony, could never say, my parents adopted me because I was well-behaved. 
because I was cute, because I was lonely, because I, I needed something. No, these parents adopted this child out of sheer mercy and sheer grace. In that analogy, we have something like the gospel arrangement. Now, what happens when, let's say those parents are wealthy, what happens when they die? All of the wealth, uh, presumably, will be passed on to the next generation. That adopted status, that by virtue of that family relationship, entitles the next generation to all that is the uh, estate, to all of the estate of the parents. And so we, by the adopting power of a merciful and gracious God, in while we were yet sinners, saved us from our sin. While we were at enmity with Him, nevertheless ransomed out of us out of darkness into His marvelous light, adopting us as His sons, has made us, by virtue of this arrangement, the heirs to all that Jesus Christ possesses and has purchased by His work on Calvary. Salvation, eternal life, communion with the Father, a home in glory, ruling and reigning at His right hand. All of this is ours by virtue of our union with Him. There's baptism and clothing are two pictures underscoring union with Christ. Wayne Grudem says of union with Christ, quote, every aspect of God's relationship to believers in some way is connected to our relationship with Christ. Christ died, we died uh, to our sin. Christ was resurrected, we are resurrected in newness of life. Christ lived a perfectly righteous life. His righteousness is imputed to our accounts that when when the Father looks upon us, He sees the righteousness of His Son, not our own. Christ experience, Christ is ascended into glory, so we will rise again at the second resurrection. Christ is enjoined to His resurrected body even now, and so will we one day. You see, in every sense, the aspects of our relationship with God are in some way connected to our relationship with Christ. His experience is our own. Election, adoption, grace, redemption, uh, and resurrection. All of these things that we look forward to and enjoy as believers are by virtue of our union with Christ, the covenant reality realized. This makes us offspring and heirs. Not by virtue of our law-keeping have we received the promises of Abraham. Nothing unique in our social standing could otherwise or otherwise would either commend us or disqualify us. No, Those who partake in new covenant blessings and promises do so by virtue of their union with Christ alone. And this is how Paul closes. He said, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In context, it's easier to understand verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in context, what Paul is saying is it is not the advantages of your Jewishness, that grants you good standing before the Lord. Neither is it your disadvantages by being Greek, a Gentile, that disqualifies you. It is not the disadvantage of being born in bondage, of being a slave and not sharing in the privileges and the blessings of good estate in this side of glory that disqualifies you, nor is it the benefits of being a free man. It doesn't matter if you are male nor female, neither one constitutes A setback, neither one constitutes an advantage. No, we are all one in Christ. The title of this message, according to the promise, not according to Jewishness, Greekness, manness, womanness, slaveness, freeness, so to speak, if you will. 
None of these things affect our standing in the least. What affects our standing? The promises of God. Notice how Paul closes. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise and promise alone. As we close and transition to communion, we could ask this question. How are we connected to the work of Christ that makes our sonship a reality? Well, notice, note again verses 13 and 14, rewinding a bit. We read them, the introduction of the message. Let us read them and close. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So, when we partake of the torn or the, the bread representing the torn blood of Christ, when we partake of the cup representing the spilled blood of Jesus Christ our Lord, we are witnessing here, dramatized before us, the very thing that allowed the blessings of Abraham to be ours, to be realized if, uh, for us, that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Remember that today as we partake at the Lord's Supper. If you are a believer in this room, and only if you are a believer, the table is open to you. And as it is open to you, remember what Christ has done, that you might be counted heirs of Jesus Christ's entire estate, and in the lineage of God's people through history, indeed, sons and daughter, uh, daughters of Abraham, all the way back to God's original proclamation and promise of His ways and means of salvation. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank You for the promise of Your Holy Word. We thank You for the beauty and yes, even the uh, complexity that is there as we see how carefully You have ordered every detail to sing Your praises and to illustrate to us, to proclaim to us in some degree Your wisdom. All this, yet we know that Your glories are so much, are, they so exceed our capacity to understand that they are indeed inscrutable. Nevertheless, I pray that you would use the proclamation of your word today and the communion table to open our eyes to understand more of your great work on Calvary. May this meal, Lord, strengthen our faith and encourage us in the hope of the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ alone. May we be, Lord, faithful ministers to proclaim the gospel without uh, error to those who have ears to hear. Thank you for your grace and mercy making this all possible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.